The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later today, we'll talk about black cell phone videos, those videos of police killing black people that have had such an immense political impact over the last couple of years. Alyssa Richardson will comment. Her new book is Bearing Witness While Black, African Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protest Journalism. But first, They're calling it the Great Barrington Declaration. It's a strategy to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and, quote, reopen America. The advocates call it focused protection. Their proposal is that schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sports, and other cultural activities should resume. Is this a good idea? For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He's co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, John. Thousands of medical practitioners and public health scientists now have signed a declaration supporting this focus protection proposal, and so have some writers for Jacobin. They say we can protect the elderly and vulnerable from the virus while the rest go back to something like normal life. Their starting point is that young people usually don't die of COVID-19, 65-year-olds are something like 100 times more likely to die than 29-year-olds. 75-year-olds are something like 1,000 times more likely to die. The people under 30 who get the disease are much more likely to recover and then have immunity, which sounds great. Is it great? Wishing doesn't make it so. The Great Barrington Declaration um, is a lot of wishful thinking and easy answers. I mean, they say a couple of things in their declaration. One is is that everybody should go back to normal um, who is not at risk. Uh, in their case, for them, it means the young. But the list of sort of activities that you describe coming back online um, is really opening up uh, for businesses, as President Trump said earlier this summer and earlier this spring. Um, they want to liberate states uh, very much like the president did and, and sort of end uh, public health controls. They also said, you know, we're going to do this responsibly because we're going to protect the elderly and the vulnerable. 
except I'm looking for the footnotes, I'm looking for the details on how they're going to protect the elderly and the vulnerable. They say, oh, well, we'll protect nursing homes. Well, 5% of American elderly are in nursing homes. The rest of, the, of our elders are in the community. They live by themselves, they live with their spouse, they live with their family. So there's millions of elderly who are not in the confines of some facility that can be locked down if, you, if, if that's the, the, the kind of restrictions they're thinking of. Then CDC came out with a study that suggested about 50% of Americans have one of the underlying conditions that can confer severe COVID outcomes uh, should you get infected with SARS-CoV-2, right? And so that means there are millions of Americans, you know, upwards of half of Americans who are, who are at severe risk of, of getting sick, potentially having long-term consequences or dying from the disease if they catch it. So they're saying, you know, the young can go back to normal, the fit and the not at risk of back to normal, but they really have no way of defining how they're going to sequester the elderly alone and then just to figure out who has uh, these underlying conditions. We know, you know, if you have a diabetes diagnosis, great. Maybe you don't have a diabetes diagnosis, but you do have it. There's a whole set of tens, hundreds of millions of Americans who are at risk and they have not, they don't have a game plan for this, right? So they, they, they're just saying, let's open up, let's send the young back into the community and we'll protect the elderly and the vulnerable. There's no plan for the second part of that. The other thing is, is that while young people are at lower risk for, for serious complications of COVID-19, they're not at no risk. You know, a study came out in JAMA a few weeks ago where they looked at the number of hospitalizations among the young in the United States for COVID, and many of them had it to be intubated and put on, on ventilators, about 2% died. Yeah, in absolute numbers, it's not very much, um, but it, they, those people were somebody's son, somebody's daughter. And what was remarkable about this group of young people is that they were largely African-American and Latino. They largely had underlying conditions. So this idea that the younger are not at risk is an overstatement of the epidemiological facts. Yes, being 80 years old with diabetes and morbidly obese is much more worrisome than if you're 20 and have diabetes. But to say that it, there's no risk is, is really saying, you know what? If you're young and fit, good for you. If not, you know, we'll figure that out later. One critic of this proposal said it could work, but there were a couple of preconditions. One, we need free quality health care for everybody. Second, we need paid sick leave for all workers. And third, we need paid family leave for caregivers in multi-generational families. It's not in the Great Barrington Declaration. And the, and the other point is that that's like a minimum. Just because you have healthcare doesn't mean healthcare is going to prevent you from, from, from dying from COVID-19. We need to rapidly scale up screening for the virus across our communities. We have to have universal mask wearing. We have to figure out how to uh, jerry-rig and reconfigure ventilation systems. There's a whole bunch of things we could do to put into place to, to protect our elderly and our vulnerable in part, in part. The point is, is if virus is circulating at very high levels, it's much easier for it to get in past your cordon sanitaire than it is if there's very little viral replication in your community. What they're doing is saying, we're going to turn it up full blast among the, among the young, and we haven't really figured it out, but we'll protect the vulnerable and the, the elderly, but there's no plan there. There's no there there. Now, the goal for this is herd immunity. Trump called it herd mentality, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's not right. So herd immunity is an immunological phenomena, and it's what you have when you, when you immunize a large proportion of a population against a disease, 70%, the 80%. The rest of that community is, is protected from infection because you've 
basically severed all the ties that can lead to infection in, in that unvaccinated group. The reason we don't send kids to school unvaccinated or tell people don't get your flu shots um, is because we don't rely on herd immunity to occur by natural infection. It kills people. We will have herd immunity someday for COVID-19, but it'll be with a vaccine or vaccines. And the idea that you're going to sort of allow it to, to happen in, in sort of a, by sort of a laissez-faire approach, let the young get infected, and we'll reach sort of a threshold of 70, 80% that we need to be uh, achieve for herd immunity is, it's just, nobody believes it's, it, it's anywhere near the truth. We're going to need to vaccinate and protect the people who are at most risk first. Um, and so making sure that vaccines are rolled out to the most vulnerable first is very, very important. This, this uh, plan for age-targeted reopening is not just a, a hypothetical. Sweden actually did it, so we have results. Of course, we should say, for starters, Sweden has a much better public health system than we do, and Swedes are much more, what should we say, engaged with their public health policies. They don't consider wearing a mask to be allowing the government to take away your freedom. So probably we would not do as well as the Swedes. How well did the Swedes do? Swedes didn't do so well. They had higher death rates than their neighboring Nordic countries, and they didn't avoid the economic damage, which I think was probably a, a strong um, motivation for them to put this into place in the first place. So they didn't avoid the economic damage. They didn't avoid the epidemiological damage, right? And even the state epidemiologist who was the big proponent of herd immunity says, you know, we probably could have done a lot better at protecting our elderly. You think? They have a better healthcare system, a better safety net. They have smaller families, right? They have more people living alone, more people living in couples. As you said, greater adherence to mask wearing and sort of voluntary efforts. Um, if we tried any of that here, the Swedes failed in comparison to their neighbors, we would have a disaster here considering the number of um, people with underlying conditions, the number of elderly, the number of multi-generational households, the terrible nature of our healthcare and our social safety net. Um, there's a Washington Post article this summer that described how you get to herd immunity, either through acquired immunity, through a natural infection or vaccines. And um, depending on your assumptions, two to three million people could be dead from, from this approach that the Great Barrington Declaration wants to enshrine. The, the big problem with the Great Barrington Declaration is that it's music to lots of people's ears. We're all so tired. This pandemic and the restrictions that have been instituted around it have put our lives into turmoil. And you and I you know, are the least at risk. There are people who've lost their jobs, lost their businesses. Um, kids have been out of school for weeks and months now. There, there's real serious effects of pandemic control, but we can do better than we have in the past. Some of the things you mentioned about instituting paid sick leave, all these other things we could build around our epidemic control systems. We're just saying, ah, it's too hard to do. We can't do it. Uh, just so, so let her rip. Let's go back to normal because we can't do the hard stuff. I want to go back to the, the issue you raised earlier of uh, people of color who are much more likely to die. I read that the death rate for predominantly African-American counties is six times higher than in predominantly white counties. What could we do about that right now? This is the point. We have to target our efforts among the most vulnerable. And that means giving people what they need to be able to stay safe. A lot of households don't have the luxury of staying for home or social distancing because their jobs mean, mean they have to go to work or they lose their income. So we're going to need to figure out some way to sort of support people economically through this crisis. We're going to need to be able to give people the resources they need if they turn out to be, turn out to be positive. 
and can't afford to take off work, you know, maybe pandemic pay. We're going to have to deal with the fact that people are struggling with, with eviction and, and, and house, housing insecurity at the current moment. We're going to have to put a moratorium on evictions and maybe rent freezes. We've got to address the underlying health and economic needs of many of these communities too. Lots of the communities we're talking about have been vulnerable for years and years and years. It's not a coincidence that it's striking the African-American Latino communities and it has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It has to do everything to do with white supremacy and racism and policies that have created these health disparities that have been lingering you know, for now for centuries. And so we're gonna to have to invest in our communities from the ground up uh, and engage in a new deal for public health. Um, but in the short term, testing, mask wearing, giving people the resources they need to stay safe, giving them all the sort of social backup they need in case it's too hard for them to do on their own. That's what we need to do. Not just basically say to the young all around them, go about your business. Don't worry about your elders. Don't worry about the vulnerable in your community. We've talked mostly about uh, healthcare and public health policy. In your new piece at thenation.com, you've, you've called also for a massive new jobs program uh, How's that connected to the pandemic? So Amy Kaczynski from Yale Law School and I wrote several pieces in the Boston Review this spring. And the last one was called The New Politics of Care. And then this summer, the Boston Review came out with a collection called The Politics of Care from COVID-19 to Black Lives Matter. Um, and what Amy and I describe over the course of these three essays is the roots of the pandemic in sort of um, structural racism and, and neoliberalism in the U.S. that have basically weakened our public health system to the point where um, we were so vulnerable to this pandemic, you could have seen it coming a mile away. 10% cuts in public health budgets over the past 10 years preceding President Trump, 55,000 frontline public health workers losing their jobs over the past 10 years, um, a, a fractured uh, healthcare system, even in the context of the ACA, and health disparities that have lingered for generations in our communities. If we're going to come out of this better than we started, we're going to have to build public health from the ground up. And that means going into communities and not just saying, let's taste, test, trace, and isolate for COVID, but figure out, can we get you tested for diabetes? What's your, your, your body mass index? Do we need to talk about exercise and, and, and healthier living for you? If you had a mammography lately to, to women, if you had a, had a, had a colonoscopy to, to, to people over 50, how's the quality of your water in your, that's coming out of your tap? Have your kids all been vaccinated? To think about health across the board in our communities from the ground up in a community health approach. Across the world, you know, there's a shortage of doctors, but we, can, we don't need sort of high-tech medicine to build a better preventive health system in the United States. We can use ordinary community health workers, which are used all around the world to do basic public health and social service tasks um, to really build health from the ground up. And it's not just us. I mean, the Congressional Black Caucus is talking about this, Senator Warren, Senator um, Merkley, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Bennett, all have talked about a sort of public health core coming out of COVID, not just to do this, the, the front end pandemic work, but to do sort of health promotion, preventive health, basic health literacy, social service provision and, and linkage to services. Um, and who needs jobs right now? <laughs> Lots of people. And so we could hire and train a million people to go to every county across the country that we've talked about that's been hard hit by COVID and say, what do you need? Not just today about COVID, but what do you need in terms of living a healthier life uh, and having the things you need to be able to do that? Uh, and Amy and I have talked about it as this new deal for public health, a public health core of a million people. Um, and I think it's the, the way forward for this because Betsy Bradley, who used to be here at Yale now as the president of Vassar, wrote a book called The American Healthcare Paradox. 
where she looked at the American healthcare spending, which is super high, highest in the world. We have really great high-tech healthcare, but we have life expectancy, which is you know in the teens compared to our the leaders in the world at, at one and two. And the thing that's different about us is that we don't invest in the social safety net and all the sort of social factors that drive Ill, drive ill health in the United States and around the world. And so this New Deal for Public Health is to say, look, let's deal with what we call the social determinants of health and lift up our communities together um, by investing in them front and center. You know, Black Lives Matter talks about defunding the police. The second phrase that's in that slogan is invest in our communities. And we're saying invest in our communities. Let's do good things for our communities instead of sort of plaguing them with violence by overzealous law enforcement and criminalization. To deal with the pandemic, we need a new politics of care. We need to rely on progressive principles of justice and equality, not on some notion of survival of the young and the fittest. Greg Gonsalves, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about cell phone videos and how they became the key to the new protest movement and the new protest journalism. For that, we turn to Alyssa Richardson. She teaches journalism and communication at the USC Annenberg School. And she's written a terrific new book, Bearing Witness While Black, African-Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protest Journalism. The book explores the lives of 15 mobile journalist activists who documented the Black Lives Matter using only their smartphones and Twitter from 2013 to 2017. Alyssa Richardson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, John. Well, let's start with the cell phone video of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. It's probably the most widely distributed video in you know, human history. It's the piece of film with the most massive political effects. It's so horrible. And there are so many more videos like it shot over the last decade. What do you think about how easy it is right now to find video of black people being murdered? That's a great question. And I think it's too easy to find these videos. In fact, I spoke up about this in June when I began to do some research into where these videos end up across the internet kind of landscape. And what I found is that not only do they exist in places like the dark web, but they're easily searchable through search engines like Google and even in our most respected stock media uh, reserves. So one could, for example, easily look up Trayvon Martin in any of these stock image services to which many newspapers and magazines subscribe and find post-mortem pictures of Trayvon Martin. You can find any number of these high-profile videos of fatal police encounters that involve Black people. And I was troubled by that because I knew that that same treatment um, was not reserved for white victims. Everyone dies. We know this. But when white people die, there is a certain veneer of dignity that is allowed that's not allowed for Black people. For example, when I went back and said, well, maybe I'll be able to find um, Daniel Pearl's video. Daniel Pearl was a journalist who was beheaded. And that footage existed online for a very long time. And then it was scrubbed from the internet, and rightfully so. 
If I think about 9-11, which affected a large number of white people, one of our most heinous attacks here on American soil and a tragic day for our country, um, there are very little videos and pictures that exist online now. They're very hard to find of the people who were jumping from those buildings and had to make that tough decision of whether to stay inside and burn or be forced out, as we eventually called it. Um, there used to be a lot of, of gory photographs. They've been scrubbed from the internet. And then when we think about any of the number of mass shootings that affect large groups of white people, for example, in Las Vegas, where you had a lone gunman who was randomly attacking a music festival, and there was footage of people running for their lives and falling down, never to give, get up again. And that footage has been scrubbed from the internet. So when I think of all of those, I have to think really far back to think of the last time I saw a white person dying on the news and the most I could come up with was Kent State. And I said, that's a problem. Why is it that we're so comfortable seeing this violence against black bodies? Is it because we're so conditioned from slavery on, from the pictures of Whit Pete with the scars on his back to the civil rights movement of black bodies being tossed in the air with fire hoses to um, even now Rodney King in the more modern era of filming to now with smartphones, are we just used to seeing black people being traumatized in that way? And I thought I need to speak up and say something because it's not okay. I was, I should say, comforted by the fact that when a man was shot in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it has been very difficult for me to find the full footage of what ha happened to Jacob Blake. And I would like to think that's because I've been telling everyone who will listen this summer that we have to equate these videos to lynching photographs. We have to elevate them there so that they exist in this sacred place that we look upon or gaze upon with solemn respect and not while we're just having our morning coffee or looping this with the casual air of a sports highlight. And then there's the issue of who shot these videos. Who shot the George Floyd video? Let's stick with that one. It's so traumatic for us to watch it. What could have been like for her to shoot it? What do we know about her? Darnella Frazier is a 17-year-old girl. So that's the thing that is perhaps most remarkable about this is that she had her iPhone 11 in the you know wrong place for anyone as a parent. I would say wrong place at the right time. But for what America needed to see, it was the right place at the right time. And she knew to not have any additional commentary. She's not talking through it. She's holding the camera really steady. And she is making sure that she's capturing the entire moment with the really calm, cool, and collective reserve of a filmmaker who is doing this in one shot. So I thought that this was a much older person at first who must have done this so that there wasn't any quaking or wavering in the arms or anything. But when I found out it was a teenager, I think that's what really saddened me the most because these witnesses are becoming younger and younger. For example, you had in this case of, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, three young sons who watched their father being uh, gunned down <laughs> from the back seat. And that's not the first time we've seen a child in the backseat. You know, Diana Reynolds was in the backseat when Philando Castile was killed. She was mm -hmm. four. So when we think about why Darnella Frazier was conditioned at 17 years old to pull out that smartphone, we have to think of what these little kids are already seeing and how they're already growing up with a consciousness that they must have that device charged at all times and they must have the media literacy to know how to operate it 
um, within seconds because anything could happen. And then there must be trauma that follows. I mean, it's traumatic for us to look at this, to be a couple of feet away from a human being being murdered and not be able to do anything about it. That's got to be traumatic. Very. And I think there's pros and cons of it. You know, I write about in the book that this is the first time where African Americans can bear witness in real time to someone who looks like them being harmed. You know, I talk about these three overlapping eras of of domestic terror against black people in the United States. And the first being slavery. Well, slaves couldn't look at other slaves being punished lest they incur the wrath of their master themselves. So they often looked away. And if you think about lynching photographs, I invoke those again, because the mobs that were there didn't have black people on the fringes kind of huddled and crying. They were at home, presumably hoping that their loved one would return to them. In many cases, that was not what happened. But this is different. This is a different time, a different era and paradigm, and that black people can be there in real time if they choose to be, if they can bear it to say, I'm not going to let anyone make up a reason why you died. I'm not going to let them forget your name. I'm going to stay here with you in this moment so that you don't die alone, so that you don't die nameless, and most of all, so that you don't die with blame. There's not any victim blaming that will happen on my watch. And so I think that's a profound shift when we think about the role that smartphones have played. And that trauma is amplified by that real-time exposure. So there's pros and cons there. And let's stick with the lynching photos for a minute. These were commercially produced, sold as postcards, often It was a group portrait of hundreds of white people, you know, grinning underneath the bodies of black men. These had a very different intention from what we're seeing today. Remind us about what lynching photos were for. Yes, lynching photos were celebratory at first. I'm so glad you brought that up, John, because in the book I talk about this concept called black witnessing. Black witnessing is different because it is defiant and it is an, it is filled with or imbued with um, self-preservation and protection and trying to make sure that that person is seen and documented properly for future, hopefully, uh, acts of justice. But white witnessing in this context is different because the person who is armed with a camera often is celebrating. That's why the third person in the Ahmaud Arbery case was arrested. He was not left alone to his own devices when they found out that he filmed uh, the actual hunting down of Ahmaud Arbery as he jogged through his community. He was arrested as well. So he wasn't engaging in black witnessing in the same way. The gazes are different. And when we think about the function that lynching photography served as these kind of attaboys, um, and on the back you would often see, look, we had a barbecue last weekend. Um, Those kinds of of, uh, celebrations in print are actually what uh, fueled the Comstock Act, right? The Comstock Act basically Mm -hmm. said, you cannot mail these things using the U.S. Postal Service anymore as a postcard. It needs to be in an envelope or not at all. And so that kind of layer of decency um, that our government uh, took on during that time was actually in response to lynching photographs. So they have a long and storied history and looking at the gazes in terms of the white photographer and the black photographer are essential here. And there's one other very famous picture of a black body and that's from the mid 50s, the body of Emma Till 
lying in state in the coffin that his mother, she said, I want everyone to see what they did to my boy. He had been lynched on a visit to his cousins in Mississippi in the mid-50s. And that was on the cover of Jet magazine. A whole generation of Black people were traumatized by seeing that picture. And it remains an important part of this history. Absolutely. In many cases, a lot of people say that Trayvon Martin is the modern Emmett Till. And my first job as a journalist was in a magazine, a story magazine, which was Jet. And I worked at Jet Magazine and actually had the privilege of of going up into that, again, this hallowed space, this shadow archive um, that had the Emmett Till photograph and to gaze upon that for the first time because I'd really avoided it all of my college career, and I talk about this in the book, that it just felt wrong to look at it, even when we were in African-American studies class. I just couldn't bear to look at it. But I thought, well, I have this job at Jet Magazine now. I need to really get past the trauma and understand the role that this storied publication had in the civil rights movement. And I was really aghast when I saw that. And I think that a lot of people were galvanized then. They're galvanized now. And his death gave us a template around which many Black people rally around the safety and sanctity of Black boys. And so when you see people like Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice or Jordan Davis being killed, it just harkens back his name all of the time. I think we have new templates that are emerging too now, though. In addition to Emmett Till, uh, we now have this Say Her Name movement, which is an incredible parallel movement, which highlights that a lot of the police brutality that occurs against African-American women is private and it's more quiet. It occurs off camera. It is what happened to Sandra Bland in 2015 when she died mysteriously in that Waller County Jail. We still don't know. And her family maintains that she would not have hanged herself. But her death actually gave us kind of what Emmett Till gave the last generation. It gave us a template around which we can now say a Tatiana Jefferson's name and Breonna Taylor's name. And Sandy Bland is really the reason why you're seeing Breonna Taylor on the cover of Oprah Magazine and Vanity Fair and painted by the venerable Amy Sherrill, the same artist who painted Michelle Obama for the National Portrait Gallery. All of these things have converged because of what we've witnessed through smartphones and because of people lifting their voices on social media. So the first part of your book and the first part of this story is about the photograph taken on smartphones. And then the other part is the distribution, which is remarkably almost all on Twitter. You say Twitter is now like an ad hoc black news wire service that bypasses the gatekeeping role of the news media. How big is Twitter for the movement for black lives today? Twitter is an incredible force. There's been so much great work done by scholars like Andre Brock and Meredith Clark and Dean Freelon that have all shown that Black Twitter is an incredibly influential force in terms of what trends at the national level and the mainstream 
And Black Twitter is really comprised of several different groups of Black people, right? It's not just one type of Black person. There are activists there. There are academics there. There are grassroots people who um, are really thinking about getting into activism, but not quite sure. And so maybe they propagate a message along before they actually jump right in on those front lines. And so there's all kinds of folks who are sharing ideas. And there are some leaders, you know, our, our research showed in the book that there were hubs of information, the people who rose to the top as the influencers who were doing the heavy lifting of publishing most of the stories. And then you have this incredible web of people also who were assigned stories at uh, local levels. So I saw a lot of activity in terms of these big names kind of farming out stories to smaller chapters or people who had boots on the ground to ask them, what are you seeing there? So for example, um, I interviewed Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and she couldn't be in all places at all times, right? So sometimes I would see on her uh, social media platform questions to different chapters, different BLM chapters of what's going on in your city tonight? What event do you want me to amplify? Or if a specific killing had just come to the fore, there was this um, amazing vetting service that they had to make sure that it wasn't a hoax and to check in to see if anyone really knew this person. And if so, who is closest? Who can go and do some live streaming? Who can fill in some text for us? And so again, you see this these patterns of people who are behaving much like journalists in these foreign bureaus who are hiring stringers, if you will, to bring back things to the big publication. And so that's a messy process. It wasn't always as smooth as I'm describing it. There's some arguing sometimes. There are many different organizations working under the Black Lives Matter umbrella. And I think that is also fascinating to realize is that when we think of the civil rights movement, we often think of it as this monolithic movement that was headed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for example. But there was really many leaders, SCLC, SNCC, NAACP, CORE, the Urban League, all of these different organizations were working for similar purposes, but they had different leaders and different missions and approaches. We're seeing that now too. And this research really helped me uh, elucidate the process of who works for whom, what causes do they hone in on. Some are doing prison abolition, others are doing Black feminist movements, which involve getting women the proper um, prenatal and postnatal care to improve the life expectancy of Black women after they give birth. So there's all kinds of things that are under this Black Lives Matter umbrella that really grew um, after we started talking about police brutality. And that conversation expanded to what does brutality look like in other arenas like education or public health. And that's what we're seeing now as COVID-19 continues to ravage the world. Uh, African-Americans are still under fire in terms of being disproportionately uh, exposed to this disease and dying from it. So when we think about Black Lives Matter, it has really become this large movement that involves many different sectors of inequality as they touch each other. And it also involves many different Black activists who are all vying for the microphone at any given time. And the communication that they come up with is sophisticated. When it works, it is a thing of beauty in terms of its coordination, impact, and reach. 
And when it's imperiled, when they are trying to still argue amongst themselves about what's the best way forward, it still creates a national discourse that allows us to question some things that we may have taken as a given for many, many centuries. Alyssa Richardson, her book is Bearing Witness While Black, African-Americans, Smartphones in the New Protest Journalism. Alyssa, thanks for your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.